Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America, and we're recording on Sunday, January 4th, 2021. So, a peaceful transition of power has taken place in America, in spite of a great deal of fear and anxiety about that process. I don't know about you, but in watching the inauguration earlier this week, it was on one hand cold and lonely in a whole bunch of ways to not see huge crowds in Washington, to see the speed with which the whole process took place. It was also still emotional and quite patriotic, watching the visible trauma of the Capitol in the background kind of looming over the whole story, and at the same time a lot less pomp and circumstance, watching Tom Hanks freeze outside the Lincoln Memorial as he tried to hold together the story was powerful and evocative. And now the work begins, a whole series of executive orders, some of which we'll talk about today, cabinet secretary hearings. And from our perspective, some of the issues I want to talk about is that the Jewish community has already begun a process of pivoting institutionally towards a new administration, a different set of priorities. And so what I hoped we would do today is do a little bit of looking forward, what we might expect, what we want to look at as the kind of agenda of the first hundred days from a Jewish communal perspective, as well as to look back on the turbulent Trump administration and its legacy and its relationship to Jewish community and Jewish interests. And on all of these issues, there's really nobody better to be able to talk to than Jonathan Greenblatt, the national director and CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, who is kind enough to be available on a Sunday to record Identity Crisis with us. So first of all, Jonathan, thanks for making time. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So Jonathan, let me start from a little bit of, I guess, an unusual place. Before we jump into the heart of the agenda, prior to coming to the ADL, I know you served in a senior role at the Obama administration. You were also, I believe, part of the Clinton campaign and the Clinton administration. I just want to start with your insights on the process of how the agenda is going to get created, how the priorities of this administration are going to be defined in this 100 days. It's always this consistent metaphor of the first 100 days as having huge impact on evaluating the effectiveness of a presidency and also giving kind of a tell of what the administration is going to work on. Needless to say, the transition was so complicated here that there's more vulnerability about that first 100 days than perhaps ever before. But maybe you could start with helping us understand how that process of shaping priorities is going to take place? How do we listen for who's going to have influence in the president's ear as we look at this administration coming into play? Well, so I think it's a really good question. I think in some ways also, I hate to say it's the wrong question, because the issue of how will the priorities be set for the first 100 days, that question was answered months ago. The fact of the matter is that the presidential transition doesn't really start on November the 5th, the day after the election or even January the 21st, the development of the priorities of the new administration and the game plan for the first 100 days typically is set during the summer after the candidate wins the primary and successfully obtains the nomination. That's a process that's formalized at the convention, but is usually fairly apparent long before. And it's during those early days that the new candidate starts to assemble the people who will constitute the leadership of his, or I suppose her transition. And they start to then assemble the broader team and they start to do the road mapping of what the new administration will look like and what the first hundred days will be. So while it's true that there were a number of meetings that the transition took with different stakeholders from other elected officials to community leaders to other kind of interests, they went in with a pretty well-developed hypothesis about what their first 100 days would be. 
Now, exogenous events will help to shape that. And there's no doubt that the attack on January the 6th was the reason why the incoming director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, in her testimony for her Senate confirmation on January the 19th, said that this would be a particular area of focus. And then the new White House spokesperson, Jen Psaki, on Friday, just her third press conference, articulated that they were going to put a full push on the issue of domestic extremism and that Director Haynes would lead that process. Note she was just confirmed in that role. So again, I think were it not for January the 6th, this issue might not have commanded the attention of the Director of Intelligence as her first big decision on the job. But the reality is that Yehuda, the priorities were laid out quite some time ago. Now, that doesn't mean to say that they can't change on the margins, and I think they do. And as it happens, the handoff between the Trump administration and the Biden administration was historic, as were so many things the Trump administration, because they shattered yet another norm on the way out the door by literally not cooperating, not recognizing that there was a new administration coming into play. And this was well recorded in the media. So I do think the one thing that is quite different than the past is these guys did not have the benefit of a running start. That in fact, they had to find their way to their offices and start figuring things out on day one because they didn't get the typical handoff that you have. On the other hand, as it turns out, it would appear that a large number of the people chosen to run different federal agencies or for senior roles in the White House were selected not only on the basis of expertise and on the basis of perhaps diversity, but also familiarity. You can look at the foreign policy team. You can look at many people around the agencies. And there have been some notable selections that have puzzled some people because they don't seem like necessarily the single individual with the most experience in a specific domain. So take the incoming head of the Veterans Affairs Administration, Dennis McDonough, who is not a veteran, never served in the military, never run a large bureaucracy. Some would say, well, why in the world would he run that? But on the other hand, he had senior roles at the NSC in the first part of the Obama term. And then in the second half of the administration was the White House Chief of Staff, where he worked with, guess what, most of the people around President Biden, including the president himself. So I think what you've seen is even though there was such a disjointed non-handoff from the Trump people to the Biden people, the Biden people have minimized or mitigated the potential downside by choosing individuals who are deeply familiar, not just with the way the executive branch works, but with one another, which means there's less of a learning curve than you might have in a typical administration where you assemble a team of top flight experts from all different walks of life, or as President Obama did in his first term, a quote unquote team of rivals. This is a team of peers. And that should facilitate their ability to diminish the potential discombobulation that the Trump people would have otherwise left them. It is striking in that sense. I like that phrase, a team of peers. There does seem to be a kind of theory of democracy or at least a theory of stability that the Biden administration is bringing in, which is in contrast to all of the rhetoric that swept President Trump into power, which was on, we're going to drain the swamp, we're going to get rid of all of the insiders, we're going to demolish these bureaucracies, we're going to bring in a total renegade group of people. There's a kind of counter argument, which is actually bureaucracies and expertise and background are actually necessary for the flourishing of a stable democracy. And I'll tell you, like, I think this is a really interesting Jewish question, which is around 
what do American Jews see as the infrastructure that helps keep American Jews safe? And it's increasingly a partisan question, as is everything Jewishly. But there is a strong American argument, democratic argument, and in some ways Jewish historical argument that says, actually, you want a roughly stable, consistent, bureaucratic structure which will ultimately be in benefit of the Republican and in some ways in benefit to the Jewish community. Yeah, look, I think Trump made this argument about draining the swamp. And this was one of the arguments for his candidacy in the first place. But it turns out he managed to be both a creature of the swamp and having an administration that from day one demonstrated an absolute disregard for all the kind of ethics and norms that made previous administrations notable. And just from day one, he completely completely abandoned the premise of transparency. It doesn't really matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. These are simply things that happened. So President Obama, for example, had a very public schedule, published the logs of who came to meetings at the White House. President Trump disregarded those things on day one. He stopped publishing the visitor logs. He didn't know who he was meeting with. But for his random tweets, President Trump stop sharing his public schedule on many days or just had quote-unquote executive time. I mean, if you read Axis or Politico or even the New York Times, there are many reports that executive time for President Trump meant watching television from the residents. President Trump decided to forego the ritual of the White House press conference, the daily press briefing. I mean, these were all kind of rituals that created some better understanding of what was happening in the Oval Office, what was happening on the compound. So he said he was going to drain the swamp. But in fact, he obfuscated and he acted in a way that was entirely inconsistent with the kind of transparency I think people had hoped you would see from him. The second thing I would say is that it turns out that he said he was going to, you know, reform government. He tried to destroy it. We shouldn't forget that his senior advisor on day one, Yehuda, wasn't some notable sage like James Baker from GOP White Houses who knew how they worked. It was Steve Bannon who said in a very famous interview he'd given before he was on the campaign, I'm not a Democrat, Republican, I'm a Leninist, was the way he described himself. So I don't think I'm breaking any news here when I say Leninists are not exactly known for preserving institutions. But it turns out that the preservation of institutions is actually pretty important. And I think we could think about institutions two ways, like the institution of our republic, the institution of our democracy, is not just a set of neo classical buildings in D.C. with ionic columns or Doric columns, right? Although we look at them and we think, oh, there's the Supreme Court, there's the Congress, there are the federal agencies. But number one institutions are actually entities like a free press and civil service and an independent judiciary and nonprofit sector and so on and so forth. And those institutions are both functions of hundreds of years of precedent And they're held together by a set of norms and values. That's like the invisible firmament that keeps the whole constellation of our government and frankly, our society together, this liberal democracy. And Trump basically took his sledgehammer to that, aided and abetted by people like Steve Bannon, whose goal was nihilism, if you will, not anything more than that. No more complicated theory of government than that, other than burn it down. Well, I'll tell you two things. So number one, We're blessed, and we can talk about it, that the republic, that our liberal democracy was able to withstand the kind of damage that the president and his henchmen did. And I would say, secondly, it turns out that institutions kind of (laughs) matter, that 
again, they look like these big monolithic buildings in DC that seem impregnable or invulnerable, but it turns out they're very vulnerable and they're very susceptible to deep damage. So then we need to ask ourselves what we can learn from what it means to bring in someone who's such a rule breaker and a norm shatterer who wants to run a government that's so opaque and that again, doesn't hew to the standards that predecessors, Republican and Democrat have set over hundreds of years. And then you draw the parallel, guess what? The people who benefit the most, or I can think of a particular people who have benefited enormously from the institutions and from the liberal democracy that we so enjoy today would indeed be the Jewish people. And it turns out that for the Jewish people, institutions are what have also allowed us, I think, to persist and persevere throughout not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. We have essentially an incrementalist tradition, right? So we have the Torah as this institution, and then we have the Talmud that helps to interpret it and modernize it for the times in which we live. Even if you look at the reform movement, or if you will, the reformation of the modes of observance, even those are very incrementalist in their nature too. And they don't tear everything down. They build upon the past. And they, again, seek to maybe modernize it so that it evolves in tandem with society. It's striking how we could see very quickly, Yehuda, that the destruction of norms, the eradication of systems, the demolition of institutions, like that's bad for democracy and it's bad for the Jews. And I think this administration will always be remembered by the bookends, if you will, of Charlottesville and Capitol Hill. These two explosive manifestations of violent white nationalism, where the first instance, Charlottesville, ostensibly that was a rally about the preservation of Confederate statues in this college town in Virginia. And it ended up with Jews will not replace us. And white supremacists with tiki torches, like a who's who of the American neo-Nazi movement descending on that town. And again, the Jews became the source of their ire. Flash forward to January the 6th, 2021. This was a stop the steal rally. And you ended up having these individuals with Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts and six MWE t-shirts rampaging through the Capitol and their supporters online gleefully exclaiming, we've overtaken the Zionist occupied government. It shouldn't be lost on us that these two moments where norms were shattered and institutions were broken, somehow we became part of the focus of that. And I think it just is emblematic of how much we have to lose as a people if we lose liberal democracy as a system and the values that come with it. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the better takes I saw on this is not to passively say the institutions will save us. It's to actually figure out how to be active supporters of and advocates for those institutions. I feel this is one of the biggest Jewish educational challenges of the next generation is how to rebuild the fabric of an American Jewishness from a narrative and ideas and value standpoint that understands the interweaving between Jewish values and American democracy. I couldn't agree more. I was talking to a member of Congress on Friday about this. You know, there's conversations about where do we go from here? And I think, of course, as it relates specifically to dealing with the threat of white nationalism, the threat of domestic extremism, we need to not just identify, arrest, and prosecute the people who literally just defiled, just debased the seat of our democracy. And we need to use all of our might to interrupt the threat of domestic extremism in a way that hasn't happened before. So you got to fight it. 
But it's also got to be about healing. And healing requires thinking imaginatively about what it means to repair the breach in our society. And it means to recognize that some of what happened was so frightening because it represented what I'll call the normalization of extremism. But in an environment where there are so many people who feel alienated or disjointed, they become very vulnerable, very susceptible, not just to scapegoating, although that's a big part of it, the root of things like QAnon and conspiracy theories are because people feel aggrieved, but they also can be swept up into these movements in ways that, as we saw happen January the 6th, really terrifying. And so we need to think about, well, how do you heal? Which doesn't excuse anyone's behavior, but it does enable us to have kind of a more expansive conversation. And I'm saying all this to get to the point that one of the challenges we have is that we need education, not just anti-bias education, which I think is part of it, but we also need pro-society education, which starts with civics. And it's interesting to your point, we not only, I think, need civics so that we better understand our democracy and its systems and what makes them actually work, which is more than there are three branches of government. This is how a bill becomes a law. That's the hardware of government. We also need to understand the software. And to your point, there's an argument to me that we also need Jewish civics, right? So how do our institutions work? And how do we interoperate with a liberal democracy? If there's anyone who should know this, like Jews cannot afford to be bystanders in this system. Jews cannot afford to sit on the sidelines and watch from the bleachers. Jewish people have no choice but to be on the field because we, as much as if not more than any other minority, have an awful lot at stake in how this game is played and ultimately concluded. Okay, so here's the complicating piece, which is roughly half of Jews worldwide, a much smaller minority of American Jews, but a sizable one, would also look back at the Trump administration and say, this was the most pro-Jewish administration in history. It's not my politics, but a set of issues, whether it's the embassy relocation, the exiting from the Iran deal, the close intimacy that the Trump administration had with the Netanyahu government, the advocacy on behalf of normalization agreements for the state of Israel with a number of countries in the Middle East, where it might have been unthinkable in a previous administration. And not to mention that, but also the image that the last gasp effort that Mike Pompeo was trying to push through as Secretary of State was a much broader definition of anti-Semitism to include anti-Israel and BDS groups, which for a certain set of Jews and Jewish communities represents a fuller articulation of what anti-Semitism is. You use the language of aiding and abetting, but parts of the Jewish community, a significant part, was playing a major role in this administration, was seen by this administration differently than any administration before. And you actually, in your leadership, kind of had to navigate a really impossible line, which was at times to embrace and endorse what the administration was doing around the embassy, for instance, while criticizing the administration for all the things that you've said so far around the giving license to white supremacy, the demolishing of institutional norms. So this is a, it's not a slam dunk to the majority of world Jewry. Entirely fair and entirely correct. This is complicated stuff. So I remember December, 2016, I was speaking on a panel in Los Angeles and I was asked for my comments opening. I said, look, I think this is a paradox. I mean, think for a minute. This president came into office with a Jewish son-in-law and a Jewish daughter. And there were Jewish grandchildren running around the residence, theoretically. We've never, in 240-some-odd years, had a president 
who was closer to the Jewish people in, in this regard. That was coming into this administration a pure and simple statement of fact that had never happened before. He was closer to the Jewish people than any of his predecessors. And, you know, some people used to remark that Barack Obama once said that he felt like a reformed Jew. I think that was a very famous quote that was attributed to him. And Bill Clinton was sometimes called like a Jewish president. And of course, Joe Lieberman ran for office as vice president on the 2000 Democratic ticket and lost. But this president came in with, again, Jewish family members among his closest advisors. And yet the paradox was, of course, he was also coming in having won with white nationalists being one of the constituencies that pushed him over the top. Like that happened. I'm not saying that for like dramatic flair. Candidate Trump would credential white supremacist media in 2016 for the campaign. Candidate Trump tweeted out memes that came from white supremacists. Candidate Trump used language that literally came out of the subreddits or the 4chan discussion groups of these not just bad actors, like incredibly anti-Semitic actors. For example, the term globalist. President Trump didn't invent it. Steve Bannon borrowed it from white supremacist lingo. Or another example would be calling his foreign policy America first, which literally came from Charles Lindbergh's very anti-Semitic crusade to not just keep America out of the Second World War, but to marginalize Jewish people who wanted America to get engaged and stop the slaughter of the Jewish people of Europe. So it was a paradox coming in, Yehuda. And I think as we look back over the last four years, I mean, the paradox persists in some ways. It's very reductive to see things in a purely black and white lens. It simply is. I mean, it's convenient when you're measuring world events in 280 characters, it lends itself to black and white, and there is no room for nuance. But as a people, as a Jewish people, I think you can look back on our survival over 2,000 plus years, and again, on those aspects of our culture which have allowed us to survive, like in the Talmud, it's all about nuance. We know that life is not meted out in the black and white, but in the gray in between. And with President Trump, we've got to recognize that you can hold two things to be true at the same time. There were things that he did that I would suggest objectively were good for the Jewish people, objectively. Take, for example, moving the embassy, which is something you mentioned. That wasn't President Trump's genius idea. It was Bill Clinton's breakthrough idea from the 1990s. And it was an idea that was then championed by George Bush. And then by guess who? Barack Obama. Only President Trump did it. So for Democrats to say that it was so awful that he did it, well, that was kind of standing policy. Now, that being said, many can then argue, well, it was the way that he did it without wringing any concessions out of the Israelis to advance a two-state solution. And I hear that. And I frankly agree with much of that because I don't think we saw any progress on a two-state solution at all. So while I do believe the eternal capital of the Jewish people is Jerusalem and empirically the political capital of the modern state of Israel is Jerusalem and it's standing democratic and republican policy to recognize these facts the way that this president did it i think he gets credit for doing it the way that he did it left a lot to be desired and i think was a missed opportunity in, in all fairness but take for example his executive order on anti-semitism which in many ways if you read it there are a couple things about it that were notable number 1 there is indeed an indisputable issue with anti-Semitism on college campuses. I know this because at ADL we track this and it's real. And yet after decades and decades, the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education had never once brought a case 
about the civil rights of Jewish students. Although there had been an attempt to bring such cases, they never once pursued one, like ever. And clearly there were cases that merited their attention that they never dealt with. The anti-Semitism EO was based on a bipartisan piece of legislation called the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act that Democrats and Republicans in Congress were behind. And it utilized the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which despite the claims of some, is a definition that was developed by academics and scholars, not by like political operatives from the Likud. And it was developed in a European context where I think, frankly, they're more exacting about anti-Semitism in some way than the coarse partisans in the United States. So there was, I think, a lot of merit to that EO. I'll also mention the Abraham Accords, which again, despite the claims of someone in what I'll call the echo chamber of the Beltway, that it was an arms deal, or I've heard some other aspersions cast on it. Again, as an organization that's been focused on fighting anti-Semitism for over 100 years, normalizing relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors that will turn down the temperature on anti-Semitism is only a good thing. And I am of the opinion that when more countries, frankly, Arab Muslim countries are invested in the state of Israel, it will help the state of Israel make better decisions vis-a-vis their Palestinian neighbors, let alone the rest of the region. So I see the Abraham Accords as an incredibly important breakthrough that, you know, I think if you were to ask old hands like Martin Indyk or Dennis Ross or Aaron David Miller or so many others who are involved in peace process negotiation after peace process negotiation, they would give Jared Kushner and the Trump people credit for it. So I think the Abraham Accords are a good thing. I think the EO is a good thing. I think that, as I said, the moving the embassy was the right thing to do. And all that being said, Yehuda, like Benjamin Franklin said, you have a republic if you can keep it. If we lose the republic, we lose everything. So I think the question you have to ask is if you were doing this like double book entry accounting, like debits and credits, do they actually match up? And I'm afraid that what we saw happen on January the 6th was a logical conclusion of Trumpism played out was a logical conclusion of, again, deeply damaging and wounding our institutions. And I think in the long run, for the good that the Trump administration did for the Jewish community, I do think the administration will be remembered for its corruption and its ineptitude and ultimately the harm that it wrought in our democracy. Join us February 14th through 18th for an interfaith symposium exploring questions of truth, difference, and allyship. Learn with outstanding Hartman scholars, including Ilana Steinhain, Danielle Hartman, and Abdullah Antepli, and guest experts like Amy Jill Levine, Mark Brettler, and Malka Simkovich. For more information and to register, visit winter.hartman.org.il. So let's stay with that metaphor for a second, because I think it gets to the heart of the issue. Is the job of the Jewish community in a moment like this to do that ledger, this was good for the Jews, this was bad for the Jews, or as you know, my colleague Rabbi David Seth Kirshner says, you know, our job is to call balls and strikes. It's not to be partisan, but to be able to say, this was good, this was less good. The problem is that in the polarized world in which we're living, the efforts of the Trump administration and in turn the Biden administration are also part of increasingly competing worldviews such that the ability to say, I like this piece of that worldview in relationship to this piece of that worldview is increasingly harder to do. You know, when I see Republican congressmen and senators 
weaponizing the Jewish community's opposition to aspects of the Trump administration's policy, whether on Israel or on anti-Semitism, and taking credit for the Trump administration's position on anti-Semitism to be critical of Jews who oppose it, it just, let me abstract a little bit more if I can. So my personal view is liberal democracy in the American model is good for American Jews, and liberal democracy in the Israeli model is good for Israeli Jews and for world Jewry. But that means you actually have to advocate for liberal democracy in Israel and not just for ethnic democracies, not just what's good for the state of Israel, just for the Jewish side of the, of the state of Israel is ultimately in the Jewish people's interests. But as we're getting pulled apart, to a lot of the Trump world, there was a kind of coherence between the America First agenda and the support of a kind of ethnic democracy agenda in Israel. So I don't know how we do that kind of cherry picking of, well, they did this thing that was basically good for Israel, but I want to separate it from this larger ideological agenda, which is isolationist in certain ways, is a preference to some ethnic groups over other ethnic groups. Can we still do that without ultimately becoming dragged into or complicit into this larger ideological polarization? These are hard questions. I mean, I think ultimately it's interesting to use the metaphor of your colleague. Like at the ADL, I think our goal is to call balls and strikes as it relates to anti-Semitism and hate, not to privilege one political party or the other, not to choose one candidate or the other. We say, look, this is how we see it. It's not always easy to do that. And I do think like, look, I know that there are many on the left who derided ADL because we said positive things about some things that the Trump administration did. That being said, there were people in the Trump administration and their kind of fellow Trumpers on the right who just abhor the ADL for all the criticism that we launched. I mean, that happened. That continues to happen. We're too liberal on the conservative side and too conservative some on the liberal side. I think the question is, is how do we try to mitigate the polarization and diminish this divisiveness? It's just, I think, so damaging to our community. It's like a body being stretched by arms, you know, and ultimately if you stretch too far, the arms will rip off the torso and the person dies. And so I think that we can't afford to continue with this. It's just deeply unhealthy for our body politic and it's deeply unhealthy for the Jewish community. As it relates to this administration, the last things we did related to this administration was less than 48 hours after the siege on the Capitol, you know, a siege which I would describe as the most predictable terrorist attack in American history because the president laid the groundwork for this with his relentless and unapologetic, not just the denigration of institutions, right? And not just the demonization of his opponents as he perceived them, his enemies, but the delegitimization of the election, right? And if you really believe the election is not legitimate and you really believe your opponents are devil worshipers or whatever, and you really believe the institutions are so flawed, Yehuda, then like, should it surprise us that tens of thousands of people descended on the mall and then thousands and thousands of them marauded up the Capitol steps? I mean, that's what their dear leader told them to do. After, again, brainwashing people to believe that some of the election had been stolen and this other madness. Anyways, with all that being said, we came out on January the 8th, less than 40 hours later, and we called for Trump to be removed from office. We did that. And again, I took a lot of heat and I know because I saw the hundreds of emails that I got, hundreds and hundreds of emails from people who were so angry that we did that. Despite the things that he had done that I might argue were worthwhile in the Jewish context, I mentioned just a few, there could be some other policies he did that we can talk about that I thought may have made sense. But the overwhelming totality of this administration, particularly with this final act, 
seem to me to cross a line, a clear line that merited his being forced to leave office, not on his own terms, not running out the clock as he did, but whether it was the 25th Amendment or it was a successful impeachment process, even if he resigned himself, like he needed to go. So we did that. We were the first major Jewish organization to do that. And again, I'm sure it'll cost me money and all the other stuff, but I feel like it matters more that if we're calling balls and strikes, we need to have clarity in terms of our moral compass about where we stand. And even though there may be some things that he did that we think were the right things to do over the course of four years, that doesn't negate or diminish the deep damage that he did and the danger I think he put our country in and our community in. So the next big agenda around the question of polarization as it relates to the Jewish community, the Jewish agenda, et cetera, is going to be the Iran deal. It's already beginning the written pieces, I'm sure the back channels, the ways in which we can anticipate that a Netanyahu administration is going to go to war the same way they did against President Obama. We know also that given that so much of the Biden agenda is basically reversing the Trump agenda and re-entering the commitments of the Obama administration, I think it's fair to say, and they've made this clear, that entering the JCPOA is a priority. How would you, from your role, suggest that we who are concerned about reducing polarization, getting the Jewish community and its interests in some ways off the front page all the time, and certainly not allowing for political interests to weaponize Jewish concerns against Jews? How do we confront this? What would a way in which to, whether you support the JCPOA or oppose the JCPOA, how does the ADL want us as Jewish community to manage this major issue that implicates world Jewry on whatever side of the ledger you're on? I mean, I think there are a few things. So, I mean, number one, I was saying a few minutes ago about the Trump administration in December 2016, seemed poised to be the administration closer to the Jewish community in history, right? Now, actually, I dare say we may have a new president, President Biden, who is, guess what, even closer to the Jewish community than President Trump. He also has children who are married to Jews. He also has Jewish grandchildren. His vice president is married to a Jewish man. They have Jewish children or Jewish stepchildren. If you look at the cabinet, Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, three out of the four, the big four, as they call them, cabinet positions, are held by Jewish people. The chief of staff of the White House, who some call the most powerful person in Washington, he's Jewish. If you look at Secretary Blinken's State Department, his deputy secretary nominee, Wendy Sherman, is Jewish. If you look at the National Security Council, the deputy NSA, John Finer, is Jewish. You could go on and on. So I think in one way, we just need to recognize that the Jewish people, it's a sign of how far we've come in ways that would make our grandparents just marvel at that we now have the ability to succeed at the highest levels. It's remarkable. So I think one thing we just need to do is to recognize that the people who are helping to make these foreign policy decisions, even as it relates to Iran, are not anti-Zionist. They're not people whose interests are inimical to the Jewish people. These are people who actually are part of our community and who understand our community with the insight of insiders. It shouldn't be lost on us that when Ali Mayorkas and when Secretary Blinken gave their testimonies in the Senate for the confirmation hearings, they talked about being the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I mean, this is real. Actually, forgive me, I think Tony is the stepson of a Holocaust survivor and Ali Mayorkas is a grandson. So I do think that their views in many ways reflect the modern American Jewish experience as immigrants, as the grandchildren of refugees, et cetera, et cetera. So I think secondly, we really must 
implore upon not just Prime Minister Netanyahu and our family and friends in Israel, but again, people across the spectrum here in the United States to take a deep breath and withhold judgment. I think the desire to leap out in front, to post that screed, to tweet those emotions is a very unhealthy impulse. This president and the administration has a mandate and the people making these decisions are from our community. And these people are unlike some of the folks in the prior administration. These are people who've been working on these issues for decades. Now, some might say that new blood like Jared Kushner, the Abraham Accords came out of fresh thinking and that's fair. But I also think we have to give these people a chance. I think that there can be no argument that the threat of a nuclear Iran, it's an existential threat for the state of Israel. It's an existential threat, I would argue, for many of our allies in Europe and American interests around the world. I think these individuals recognize that. And forget the fact that I worked with many of these people in the last administration. If you remember, Yehuda, I came out against the first version of the JCPOA. Not because I was a nuclear physicist, like I don't know more about nuclear physics than the people who negotiated that deal. But what I do know is anti-Semitism. And what I do know is that Iran is the single largest state sponsor of anti-Semitism and the largest state sponsor of terror in the world. And so those things troubled me and I felt like the last deal didn't deal with it. So I'm willing to wait and see, and I will you know, make my views known, but to give this new leadership a chance to ensure that any new deal, JCPOA plus or JCPOA 2.0, reflects our concerns. Not in a narrow sort of circumscript way, but make sure that at its root, this deal is about reducing the Iranian hegemonic threat in the region and the threat that it poses to Jews worldwide. Like if we all just take a breath, if we all just take our phones and put them down, we all just resist that impulse to post or tweet that thought that leaps to our mind, I think we would all be much better off. Right. That's the balls and strikes that we were talking about before. And, you know, it's not newsworthy if I come out in favor or against the JCPOA, but I felt like my piece of the work was figuring out how do I talk to my friends on the left to help them understand that their glee about the nuclear Iran deal, I felt was largely a reflection of their need to support the Obama administration reflexively, as opposed to figuring out, you know, maybe the fact that 85% of Israelis don't like this should be a constraint on how we respond. Let me ask you one last thing, and then I'll let you go, which is, Just going back to the representation question, because I see a lot of your work as a major ambassador against hate, wherever it materializes, and that especially when you talk about advocating for a better America, it's on behalf in some ways of the Jewish community, but it's also on behalf of Americans. But you have a representational role. You and other leaders of what you might call establishment or organized Jewish community institutions to represent the interests of the Jewish community. There's a narrative that sometimes these organizations are more right-wing than the majority of American Jews. There was a weird little story last week. I don't know if you followed it. It was covered in JTA that one of the people who was running AEPI, which is a member of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, turns out was on the board of Turning Point USA, which sent eight buses to the rally. I don't need you to comment on the Conference of Presidents, but there's a story here of the organized Jewish community being further right than the Jewish community itself, which votes somewhere between 72 to 78 percent for Democrats pretty much across the line. So I just wonder if you could help us for last question, like thinking about what it looks like to represent Jews in America, not just Jewish interests. I think this is what's good for Jews, but actually Jews as a percentage of the electorate. What does that look like and feel like? I think it is a great question. And I think that 
indeed, it's fair to say that many of our Jewish institutions have a lot of work to do to be more inclusive and to be more, if you will, representative of the community that we're serving. It's not lost on me that if you look at the federations across the country, the vast majority, by that I think I mean all of them, are run by men, when half of our community is women. And indeed, many of the largest communal organizations like ADL for a long time were run by white, straight men over the age of 65, to be generous, probably really 70 plus. And that's still a problem. You've started to see some glints of change. You know, when I came on board at ADL, I was 44, which that was quite different than my predecessor. But it's not just about age. I mean, we live in a Jewish community that's increasingly multiracial. And so we need to represent that. We live in a Jewish community that's increasingly intermarried. And we need to represent that. We live in a Jewish community where there's a wide range of levels of observance. We need to represent that, let alone the political stripes. So it shouldn't surprise us that longstanding centennial institutions take time to change and evolve. And I think what we've seen in the last few years from President Obama's election to the George Floyd movement, I think you've seen a greater dawning and awareness of issues of racial justice. And I think, by the way, Vice President Harris's election also is a sign of progress. I think our institutions have a lot of work to do to catch up with that. And by the way, when we talk about diversity of the multiracial Jewish community, it's not just Jews who identify as African-American or identify as black. It's also Jews who identify as Latino, right? It's also Mizrahi Jews who might identify as people of color. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that Dr. Sharon Nazarian, our senior vice president ADL for international affairs, she's born and raised in Iran and came to this country as an immigrant. And I'm proud of the fact that she's out there testifying before Congress and she's out there speaking to the press. And she's, again, she's helps with our policies relates to supporting Jewish communities worldwide. And I don't mean to, if you will, tokenize her. I'm proud of the fact that we have made an effort at ADL and, you know, I have Jews of color in leadership positions in my organization. On my board, we have Jews of color who identify as Asian American or as Latino or Middle Eastern, if you will. So I think we are, we need to do more to change our own organizations. And again, it shouldn't surprise us that some of the pressures for change aren't intrinsic, but extrinsic. There was this effort launched earlier this year by a bunch of young Jews of color to push for Jewish community organizations to diversify their leadership and their boards. I can't remember what the name of that was, but you probably saw it when the news broke about it in the summer of 2020. And I think just last week, Bechol Lashon, the longstanding organization focused on the needs of Jews of color, announced that there was a leadership transition and their new executive director, their founding executive director, stepped down. And their new executive director is herself a Jew of color. Like change needs to come. And some of it may require the pressure of outside activists. And some of it hopefully will when these organizations just simply do a better job. I also think, by the way, we really do need to recognize the increasingly interfaith nature of our community, right? I think we need to recognize patrilineal Jews as being as valid as matrilineal Jews. And I say this not as a rabbi, I say this as a leader who's got a lot of members of my leadership team and staff and supporters who themselves identify as just as Jewish as me, even if it wasn't passed down on the mom's side and observe the rituals and show up at shul and consider themselves not just religiously, but culturally part of our community. We've got to do a better job of embracing them as well as Jews of choice, who for a long time, again, have not been exactly embraced 
by the longstanding institutions of our community. So Yehuda, I think it's a very good question. And I think ways that that could start is not only Jewish organizations adopting the goals as laid out by that activist group, whose name I wish I could remember, but I would say additionally, like the Conference of Presidents could change. Embracing more of the organizations that represent the span of our community, not just longstanding conservative voices, but newer, maybe more progressive voices. Smaller organizations that, again, have given voice to parts of our community that have for too long been marginalized or not embraced. And I ultimately will say that I think the fact that we are multiracial, the fact that we are kind of interfaith, the fact that we have a kind of richness to our community, these are sources of strength, not shame. And I think Jewish communal institutions from synagogues to NGOs to others, we can revitalize and re-energize ourselves and reconnect with the next generation when we embrace the reality that's right in front of us and place a premium on the value that it creates. I echo all of that. I would say if organizations like the conference don't actually represent the center of gravity of who the Jewish community is and where it's heading, it's less likely that they remain the center of gravity just because of history. It's more likely that the center of gravity shifts elsewhere. So it's not just morally right to make that shift. It's also essentially in their own long-term interest. Well, Jonathan, thanks again for taking the time. Jonathan Greenblatt, the National Director and CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. And thanks to all of you for listening. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Harman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for listening.